If you would uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 5, as we uh, continue our series in Leviticus, we'll be uh, this afternoon in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 7. And uh, just to kind of give you the, the lay of the land before we read the, the text, the first 13 uh, verses deal with a set of sacrifices that are for some of the particular sins that are listed here in the beginning of chapter 5. And so that, that kind of forms one section. And then verses 14 through 19 contains uh, a section which deals with kind of the first of the guilt offerings proper, guilt offerings for sins that are directed towards God. And then chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, deals with guilt offerings that are uh, to be offered in cases where one has sinned against someone else. Kind of a, a horizontal sin as opposed to a vertical sin, if you will. So let's, let's look to the text, beginning in, in chapter 5, verse 1. Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Now if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort his uncleanness may be, with which he becomes unclean and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever manner a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, Then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. And so it shall be, when he becomes guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb... Then he shall bring to the Lord for his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first that which is for the sin offering and shall nip its head at the front of its neck, but he shall not sever it. He shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The second, he shall then prepare as a burnt offering according to the ordinance. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering, for that which he has sinned, he shall bring the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as its memorial portion and offer it up in smoke on the altar with the offerings of the Lord by fire. It is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin which he has committed from one of these, and it will be forgiven him. Then the rest shall become the priests, like the grain offering. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, 
according to your valuation in silver by shekels in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing and shall add to it a fifth part of it and shall give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and it will be forgiven him. Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it will be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by extortion, or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full, and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. So obviously this text deals with the subject of the guilt offering. And to be fair, there is a bit of dissent among commentators on this passage as to whether the sacrifices described in chapter 5, verse 1 through 13 are to be considered as sin offerings or guilt offerings. And uh, the, uh, the difficulty arises from verse 6 in which it is described as both. And so in verse 6 we read this, He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a male or female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf. The offering for those sins that were described in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, is therefore described as both a guilt offering and a sin offering. Obviously, the the sin offerings that we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4 came before. Those were not referred to as as guilt offerings. And then what follows in chapter 5 and early on in chapter 6 from chapter 5, 14 down through chapter 6, verse 7 are specifically described as guilt offerings. One commentator uh, felt that the kind of the defining aspect of a guilt offering was the fact that there was a restitution that needed to be made. And certainly you see that in the, uh, the one section pertaining to the Lord's holy things, uh, beginning in chapter 5, verse 14, and down to the end of the chapter. You see it in regard to the sins against man, the horizontal sins in chapter 6, where a restitution had to be made. It's a fair point. But the, uh, the difficulty, though, still remains in that uh, the, the sins of chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where there's no restitution prescribed, the offering for them is also called both a guilt offering and a sin offering. And so I don't, uh, 
put myself forward as a great expert, but I can somewhat sympathize with John Gill's comment on chapter 5, verse 6, when he said, It is generally thought that there was a difference between a trespass offering or guilt offering and a sin offering. But it is not easy to say wherein the different lies. And what has been observed by learned men is not very satisfactory. And certain it is that the same offering is here both called a trespass offering, a guilt offering, and a sin offering. And so, uh, so there's a bit of a difficulty and a bit of unclarity there. But uh, what we have here in the, this first opening section, uh, we have these sins listed out in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. We have these, these four categories of sin for which sacrifices are prescribed in verses 6 through 13. In verse 1, the sin is that of a witness who is placed under oath uh, in the the form of a trial, a public public adjuration to speak the truth and tell it, and the person here who sinned was put in such a position and did not tell the truth. Proverbs 29-24 speaks of this situation when it says, He who is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath but tells nothing. He's been put under oath. He knows the truth. He's a partner with a thief. He doesn't tell the truth to cover for the thief. And if you recall, Christ himself was placed under oath at his trial by the high priest Caiaphas when Caiaphas said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, who had kept quiet in his trial up to that point, answered. He said, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. It's Matthew 26, 63 and 64. Jesus had kept silent prior to that, but he was placed under oath, and he spoke up, and he told the truth. He did not hold back the truth which he knew. To do so would have made him guilty of the sin described here in verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 describe the second and third categories of sin which are in view, which are uncleanness that would come upon someone either by touching a carcass of some unclean thing, as in verse 2, or coming into contact with some kind of human uncleanness, as in verse 3. And for further details on those things, I would say stay tuned till later in the series when we get to Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 15. We'll try to, Lord willing, hash out some of, that, some of those details a little bit more there. Verse 4 describes the fourth category of sin in view here, which is the sin of swearing rashly, whether it be an oath of something good that was good in and of itself, but one was not able to perform or one ultimately would not perform, or whether it was an oath to do something evil. Either way, such an oath was sinful. And so, as we find in verse 5, when a person became guilty in any of these things, he was to confess that in which he sinned, They say that confession is good for the soul, and certainly it is, but it is best for the soul, not because of some subjective feeling that we get because of confession, but because confession is a necessary part of repentance. And so then the standard offering which was to be given in such a case is described in verse 6, a female lamb or a goat. But in what follows in verses 7 through 13, is similar to what we saw back in chapter 1, as in the case for the burnt offerings, where allowance is made for those who are not so well-to-do, financially speaking. And so verses 7 through 10 give the first caveat. If you cannot afford a lamb, then in that case he's to offer two birds, either two turtle doves or two pigeons. In such a case, the one bird was to be offered for a sin offering, 
and then the second for a guilt, or excuse me, for a burnt offering. And I think it's not without cause that the sin offering was to be offered first, and then the burnt offering, because the the sin had to be dealt with first before the worship that was symbolized by the burnt offering could be realized. And then verses 11 through 13 give the second caveat. If one's means were insufficient even to provide two birds, two turtle doves, two young pigeons, then one may give a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for the sin offering. Now, we've encountered the the giving of fine flour before, back in the grain offerings of chapter 2, but this is not entirely the same. It is specifically called a sin offering. The noteworthy distinction here between this sin offering and the grain offerings of chapter 2 is that here there is a specific amount that is prescribed, a tenth of an ephah. Back in chapter 2, when the grain offering was just a symbol of worship to the Lord, it was a little more open-ended. You could give more, you could give less, no specific amount prescribed. But here, it's a tenth of an ephah, so in our terms, approximately one-tenth of a bushel. And also, in the sin offering here, it is explicitly said in verse 11 that there is to be no oil or incense that is placed on the sin offering. Various... Possible reasons have been postulated as to why this was the case. I think it seems reasonable to suppose that since this was a sin offering, it was not a general expression of worship and praise, and therefore the frankincense and the oil should be left off, these being symbols of of joy and worship, and uh, also possibly that uh, the oil sometimes symbolized grace, And sin is completely opposed to grace. This being a sin offering, therefore, uh, there should be no oil mixed into it. So uh, there's some differences between the the sin offering prescribed here in verses 11 through 13 and what we've seen with the grain offerings in chapter 2. But one similar aspect is what you find in verse 13, that there was the the memorial portion that was to be offered up in fire and the rest belonged to the priest. Same, same sort of thing happened with the grain offerings of chapter 2. Now when we get to verse 14, as we said, we kind of we shift gears and we get to the, the guilt offerings proper, these offerings for which a restitution must be made. And uh, again, what we find here at the end of chapter 5 is a sin in which one has sinned against the Lord And then chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, you see kind of a horizontal sin, a sin against mankind for which a guilt offering must be made. And in both scenarios, the prescribed sacrifice is the same. You see this in 515, 518, and chapter 6, verse 6. It is to be a ram without defect from the flock. And so in uh, the end of chapter 5, from verse 14 on down, the offering is for someone who sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord, sinning unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord. And it seems that this could be uh, perhaps the withholding of tithes, the withholding of first fruits, or perhaps maybe uh, eating the, uh, the sacred things that belonged to the Lord that were either to be offered on the altar or were to be given to the priests. And... And so the worshiper must sacrifice the the ram as a guilt offering, but according to verse 16, he also had to make restitution for what he had withheld. He had to pay not only what he had withheld, but also add one-fifth to it, and he had to pay it to the priest. Verses 17 through 19 seem to, to reiterate and flesh out a little bit what was stated in 14 through 16. The offering 
is for a person who sins and does any of these things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware of it. And one thing worth observing here is that despite his naivete, he is still guilty. His ignorance of his sin did not at all, in the least, render him blameless. So he's to bring this ram for the error so that atonement may be made for him and he would be forgiven. And then, as we said in chapter 6, we get to these horizontal sins, as it's described there. It's an offering for a person who sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion. And it's, it's interesting how that's phrased there, isn't it, in, uh, in chapter 6, verse 2, where the person is sinning and acting unfaithfully against the Lord, but how is this manifesting itself? It's manifesting itself in a horizontal sin against someone else. And so what are these sins? Well, these sins include deceiving someone in regard to a deposit or a security. Um, might be that uh, you were going on a journey and you had to leave some money, uh, some valuables with a friend, and, and he decides, well, I'll just uh, rake off the top there and give the rest back, right? There's no, there's no banks in ancient Israel for you to make a deposit. And uh, so if someone deceives someone in regard to a deposit or security, uh, something that he had entrusted to the uh, to them could be also the sin of robbery or extortion or finding something that was lost and not returning it as, uh, as should have been done, but going on to lie about it and potentially swear falsely. At the level of our perception, these are sins against mankind, but the person who does any of these things is ultimately sinning against the Lord and acting unfaithfully toward the Lord. And so what is to be done in such a case? Well, we find that in verse 4 and following. The person was to restore what was stolen, what was extorted, the deposit that he took, the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he swore falsely. He was to make restitution for it in full, and then again add the one-fifth value to it. If you uh, scraped off $100, had to pay back 120 He was to give it to the person to whom it belonged on the day that he presented the guilt offering, according to verse 5. And this seems to at least be in the background of Jesus' thought when he spoke in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, and said, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. At the very least, that principle was in play, both here in Leviticus and in the words of Jesus, that our worship is not acceptable to God if we are not reconciled to the man against whom we have sinned. And likewise, this is kind of in the background of our liturgy of the Lord's Supper when I ask that those who come to the Lord's table be in charity with all men. This doesn't mean that our participation in the Lord's Supper should be based on whether everybody likes us. Some people might dislike you, and it's no fault of your own. You can't change their hearts. But if you are at fault and there remains something that is hindering your fellowship with another believer, we ought to get those things dealt with before we come to worship the Lord. Our sins against man are ultimately sins against God. But there's some good news here in regard to this guilt offering, and that is that there is forgiveness to be found. Right? If you look there uh, to, the, to the end of the... Uh, the situation there in verse 7, the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done 
to incur guilt. And this ties in with our discussion a couple of weeks ago in regard to unintentional sins, which were described in chapter 4, versus the the high-handed sin, which we made a contrast. The high-handed sin is described in Numbers chapter 15. Now, this is encouraging in that if you look at these lists of sins described here in chapter 6, these are not accidental sins, right? These are not described as unintentional sins or errors. You don't accidentally, unintentionally rob someone, do you? You don't accidentally, unintentionally extort someone, do you? You don't accidentally and unintentionally defraud someone of their deposit or find something that was lost and then lie about it so that you can keep it, right? There's a, there's a level of intentionality that's going on there in these sins. But nevertheless, these sins are not the high-handed sin because there is atonement that can be made. There is forgiveness for these kinds of sins. And if it was so under the Mosaic Covenant, then certainly it is so under the New Covenant in Christ. Again, the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. And similarly, our Lord Jesus speaks in Mark 6, 28 and 29, when he says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. There is forgiveness and grace to be found in Christ for all who come to him in faith. Again, as I mentioned last time a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 4, if you look throughout the entire Bible from start to finish, you will never find someone who desired the mercy of God and came to God for it on God's terms in genuine faith and repentance and failed to receive it. You won't find that because everyone who comes to God on God's terms will find mercy. And indeed, Jesus is not only our priest who makes atonement for us so that we may be forgiven. He is also our guilt offering. We saw last time how he was the the sin offering. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 uses the same word that's used here for guilt offering when it describes Jesus and says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will will prosper in his hand. Christ is not only our sin offering, he's also our guilt offering. Christ is the offering for these sins that we commit, that this category of sins that require restitution be made. Christ is the sacrifice for that as well. And so thanks be to God that we have not only a greater priest than the priest described here in Leviticus, but also a greater guilt offering than that which is described here in Leviticus. It's through Jesus that all of our guilt and all of our sin is taken away. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that that we are sinners, that we commit sins that are intentional and that are not accidental. Father, we pray that you would purge us of these things, that you would kill the desires in us that desire to do those things and bring us more into alignment with your holiness and righteousness. 
Father, we thank you that Christ is our guilt offering, that he has rendered himself as a guilt offering for us so that now we may be completely and entirely forgiven. We give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.